Reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. It's strange to start this kind of solemn service of reflecting on Scripture and meditating on Scripture with the following statement, but this statement is actually true. There's a decent chance that this verse, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, was not part of the original gospel that Luke wrote. There's actually pretty compelling evidence that it was added sometime in the second century, about a hundred years after Luke wrote it. And so, like other stories of somewhat questionable origin, um, like the story of the woman caught in adultery where Jesus is drawing on the ground and then says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, or like the long ending of Mark where Jesus talks about how the disciples will be able to pick up snakes and handle them. We have to deal with the fact that this might not have been part of the original gospel account. Everything else is that they were casting lots for his clothing, that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. But this saying of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, might not have been in the the original book. And we can say this without fear or shame or worry because our faith is not built on myths. It's not built on allegories or stories. It's built on historical accounts of actual facts. And so we stand on the truth that God is who he says he is, that the Bible is what it says it is, and that Jesus did what he says he was going to do. And so if God is the very source of truth, we don't need to be ashamed or worried if we find out that something might have gotten added to the Bible after it was written. There is evidence that it might have actually been in there, but there's evidence that it isn't. And so with that caveat, we proceed to think about this last saying of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The unthinking ways that human beings can sometimes hurt one another and abuse one another are seemingly infinite. Sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in absolutely enormous ways, but oftentimes unthinking, unaware of what we're doing. In every case, it's because we don't see sin the way that God does. We don't think of evil and the actual harm that we do to other people in the same way that God sees it. If we were able to see real reality, the way that the creator of the universe can see it, it would show us that sin is monstrous more than we ever thought. It is a corruption and a perversion of the way life is supposed to be lived. It is an affront to God's justice and his holiness. And one of the ironic results of sin is that it actually dulls our senses to its own evil. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin, that it actually changes our thinking. It changes our perception. How our sinful, fallen nature can 
actually impede our ability to even process right and wrong. Romans 1.18 says that the human condition is this, that although everyone knows about the existence of God, it's a little paraphrase, that everyone knows about the existence of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, that they became twisted in their thinking, and that their foolish hearts were darkened. This is plainly obvious in the world around us. If someone does the same thing, the same evil, the same sin, over and over again, our ability to process that as sin starts to go away. Our senses get dulled to the repeated sins that we do, and our foolish hearts become darkened. And so we praise God in this moment that he actually stepped into our world, took our nature upon himself, that he became human in order so that he could actually pay the price on behalf of other humans, that he could take this incalculable punishment for sin that we so richly deserve. Praise God that he could look on sinful people who at that point hadn't even done anything to merit God's favor, that he could look at them and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, 35 through 43. And the people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is known as the story of the thief on the cross, also known as the penitent thief or the good thief. It's often example one used by Protestants as the prime example of why baptism might not be absolutely necessary for salvation. How God can do whatever he wants, for whomever he wants, whenever he wants. And so when this story gets brought up, it's often as an, as a, as an underpinning, as a proof text, to illustrate a point of doctrine or a point of theology. And I don't think that often enough we just pause to reflect that these were actual people on an actual afternoon having an actual conversation. Because there is an as there's another aspect of God's grace on display here. This common thief, condemned to die as an apparently irredeemable criminal, this man was the first door through the gates of heaven behind Jesus. People will occasionally say that Christianity seems so unfair. It's so unfair. You mean to tell me that someone can be an e as evil as they possibly can during their life here on earth, and at the last second, on their deathbed, 
All they have to do is believe in Jesus and suddenly everything they've done is forgiven. All the, all the terrible evil that they did wiped away and that they get to have eternal life with Jesus. Well, yes, that's, that's literally what we believe. At any point in their lives when someone finds true penitent faith and trust and, and loyalty to Jesus, when they are united with the Son, they are reunited with the Father, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they are indwelt by God, they are reborn, born again with a, with a new heart, washed by the blood of the Lamb, even on their deathbed. Isn't that offensive to our sense of fairness? Jesus tells a story about how, in the kingdom of God, how some of the, how some of the workers will show up at the beginning of the day, and others will show up in the middle of the day, and some people, some workers, will show up right before closing time and all of them get a full day's wage. Isn't that unfair? Until we remember that none of us deserves the wage in the first place. Until we remember that none of us deserves eternal life with God. That none of us deserves to be in this kingdom. And that the wage that we have all earned, instead of a full day's wages for a good job done, the wage that we have all earned is death for our sins. And so we see this thief, not even identified by name, just identified by his worst, most public attribute, a man condemned to die. And this man is the first one right on the heels of Jesus into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I will build my church. Even at the hour of his death, Jesus was still building his church. Even while suffering physical pain that I do not think that any of us here can imagine, Jesus was still, at that point, seeking the lost. Even as he was suffering spiritual pain that no human being in existence can possibly imagine, Jesus was still reaching out to and caring for the least of these. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our next reading is from John 19, 25 through 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Another example of how in all circumstances, God continues to build his church. From the Garden of Eden until Jesus comes again, God continues to build his church. Even in the midst of unimaginable suffering and unbearable physical pain, Jesus continues to build his church. But this is not an instance where he is building his church numerically. This is an instance where he is building his church by strengthening it and reinforcing it interpersonally. It's not just a raw numbers game in the way that Jesus builds his church. It's with internal relationships that act as 
load-bearing walls and crossbeams. He continually provides for his people through his people. He cares for the vulnerable by those who are near them. By this time in the story of Jesus' life, his mother Mary may well have been a widow. Her husband Joseph may well have been dead. He certainly isn't mentioned at any point in any gospel narrative by the time Jesus was an adult. So Mary might well have been one of the many widows that Jesus was frequently telling us that we need to provide for. And even on the cross, Jesus lives this out. He forges this new relationship, building his resurrection people evermore into a new creation family. Here we see Jesus as the cornerstone of his church, strengthening it. And here we see Jesus as the great high priest of his church, guiding it. And here we see Jesus as the good shepherd, leading his people to become the family that he continues to gather to himself up to this day. In the church, we see people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of walks of life, all coming together to be a new creation family. And Jesus does not say, Mother, stay with John. He's going to take extra good care. John, care for Mary here. She is worthy of honor and deserves comforting. He doesn't say that. What he does is what he always does. He forges a new reality by the word of his mouth. He creates a new creation family. When he says, woman, behold, this is your son. And then turning to the disciple, behold, this is your mother. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sepakthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Eloi, Eloi, lava samachthani is the Aramaic version of the opening lines of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a belief among Hebrew scholars and among experts in first century Judaism around the time of Jesus. There's a belief that when a rabbi would quote the first line of a known passage of scripture, or the first line of a psalm, that what he wanted his listeners was to, to keep in mind, he wanted to bring to their mind the entire contents of that passage, or the entire verse structure of that psalm. And so to be sure, the opening lines of Psalm 22 are bleak and appropriate for Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you know the whole psalm, you know that there is a turn in the middle of it, as there is in almost every other psalm of lament. It goes from crying out to God to shouting in admiration of the victory that God has won for his people. Psalm 22 is both a lament, a cry of despair, 
but it's also a psalm about the advancement of the kingdom of God and the mission of God and the triumph of God's plan of redemption. Listen to the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day and night, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised of all people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and they are none to help. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, be my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lions. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will praise you. All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from them, but he has heard and cried out to them. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. The humble shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall find the Lord. May all your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and bow down. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Their descendants shall serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. Everyone will come and declare his righteousness. To a people yet to be born, they will declare what he has done. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leba samachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus said on several occasions that all the scriptures point to him. And so much of what he did in his earthly ministry was itself a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Psalm 69 says, Insults have broken my heart, and I am in despair. I waited for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but there was none. Instead, they gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. These same people who were standing around jeering at Jesus, misunderstanding him when he was saying in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These were probably the same people in view here in this verse. We aren't really sure what the sour wine is that verse 29 talks about, but in all likelihood, it was vinegar. It was red wine vinegar. In other words, this would be something that absolutely would not cure someone's thirst, but would actually accentuate it and make it worse. In other words, there's no way that this was a kind gesture of mercy, but rather yet another act of ridicule and torment of our Savior. One other image stands out in this little snapshot of Jesus on the cross. A hyssop branch. It seems like an odd thing to use to reach up to somebody on a cross. Why not use a long stick or a pole? Maybe it was because that was the closest thing they had lying around, but I don't think so. Maybe it was because God was once again reaching back into the Old Testament scripture to once again solidify the picture of who this Jesus really was. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses was instructing the children of Israel on how to prepare for their flight from Egypt, for their escape from slavery. It said that Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, go, select lambs for yourselves according to each of your families and kill this Passover lamb. Then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of your two doorposts and the frame over the door. None of you shall go out of this door until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptian. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And so we see in Exodus that a branch of hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood of the lamb so that the Lord's judgment might pass over them. Here in John, a branch of hyssop is offered to the Lamb of God in the moment that he was bleeding and dying for us so that the Lord's judgment might pass over us. A hyssop branch containing vinegar that someone offered to Jesus, hanging there in the noonday heat in response to his plea, I am thirsty. The sixth word Luke 23, verses 44 through 47. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, 
calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The determination of the human heart to willfully turn away from God is astounding. The people who orchestrated and observed Jesus' crucifixion did it. You do it. I do it. Because that's what sin is. It is a turning away from God, from his character, from his nature, from his laws, his commandments, and his path. It's putting what we want ahead of what God wants for us. And the cross was God's plan for how to deal with that, finally, fully, once for all. And this was the plan all along. All throughout the Old Testament, it was hinted at, it was foretold, patterns repeating over and over, pointing to something greater than themselves. The true and better Adam, the true and better Abraham, the true and better David, everything in redemptive history up to that point was leading to this moment. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus gives up his spirit, he cries, it is finished. It is finished. In Greek, that phrase is one word, tetelestai. It means it's over, it's done, it's complete. It's perfected. The work of Jesus the Redeemer finished. He died so that we would live. In Genesis 22, Abraham, a godly man, is called on to sacrifice his only son, the one that God had promised to him the one that he had been waiting for. And although Abraham did not understand it in the slightest, he obeyed. Young Isaac, 
confused. He said, Father, I see the wood and I see the knife, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham said to him these exact words. He said, God himself will see to the sacrifice. And at the last minute, God stops Abraham because he was never, he was never going to have him kill his own son. And Abraham looks up and he sees what the real sacrifice was that God had seen to. A ram caught in the thorns by a bush around its head, caught with a crown of thorns. Abraham sees the sacrifice that God demanded and provided, wearing a crown of thorns around his head. God himself will see to the sacrifice. At Passover, God told his people to kill a spotless lamb and to put the blood of it on the doorway of their house so that the blood of the lamb would cover, would cover over those in the house and God's judgment will pass over them. God himself will see to the sacrifice. All these Old Testament metaphors, stories, signs and symbols, all of them coalescing and harmonizing and they all unify in this moment on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The penalty for sin has been paid. The separation of God and God's people is over. The, the curtain of the temple has torn in two. True and full reconciliation between us and the one who made us. Adopted as beloved song, sons and daughters. Able to call God Father. Brothers and sisters with Christ, united with him to one another in his body. It's easy in images of the crucifixion to focus on the actual physical suffering of Jesus. And it is real. And it was horrific. The images are unflinching and brutal. The whipping, the scourging. His hands and feet nailed to a wooden cross. The spear shoved into his side. That alone would have killed him. It's a torturous way to die. And the Romans did it that way on purpose. Sometimes in the Roman Empire, the road going into a city would be lined on either side with crosses and people hanging on them as a warning about what happens to you if you go against the empire. And so as gruesome and almost unthinkable as that kind of torture is, especially to our modern Western minds that tend to have a more sanitized view of, of, of what life is, even given that, we should not regard Jesus' physical torment as the greatest price that he paid. Many people throughout history have been, and still even are to this day, horrifically tortured. What should weigh heaviest on us instead when we think about what happened on this day, on that cross, is the weight of the sin that Jesus bore. God hates sin. It is a violation of his law. And his law, the law that he gave to his people, that in of itself is a reflection of his character, his nature. So when we sin, even if we don't realize it, what we are doing is turning against God. We are trying to become little gods ourselves, discerning right from wrong, because all of a sudden we think we get to decide. We get to decide what right and wrong is, what's acceptable and what's not. 
And so if God hates every single sin, imagine the full weight of His wrath that Jesus bore that day. Every single sin, all the sins of His people, past, present, and future, on the head of one person in one moment. Jesus knew what He had come to earth to do. And so He knew, because He knew what He came here to do, He knew when that work was done. He knew when it was over. To Telestai, it is finished. Redemption accomplished, restoration achieved, forgiveness obtained. And so my question to you today is, do you really believe this? Do you believe that this incredible gift that God has given for free, do you believe that you have been made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross? Hebrews 10 says that the great high priest Jesus made the final and ultimate sacrifice of himself once for all, nothing more needed, ever. It is finished. And that means it is finished for all of us who make tiny little gods out of something trivial in our lives and try to elevate it to the place where it is definitional to who we are. It is finished for all those who do evil in the name of God. It is finished for those who don't know how to rest and don't know how to trust in the goodness of God. It is finished for prostitutes and drug dealers for pornographers and pornography addicts. It is finished for liars and thieves, gossips, busybodies, torturers, everybody that you can think of who puts their faith in Christ. It is finished. It is finished for everyone who follows Jesus. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, in each of the Gospels, when he started his earthly ministry, what did he say? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent, meaning turn away from your sin and turn to me. And he also said, follow me, come with me. And so after this work, what does he say at the end? He says, it, the work that he has been doing, it is finished. Our sin is paid for and we are forgiven. Thanks be to God.